You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. It's really a great little community. We've kind of watched it struggle. Of course, when I was a kid, it was a thriving community because there were all, there were three big shoe factories. The downtown had everything you could imagine. And you, you, you didn't really have to go anywhere to get anything in the 50s and 60s. Then those towns, all those mill towns started to die and fade away. And when we got there, the downtown was pretty bleak. And slowly over the last 29 years, we've seen it come back. You know, I think, I think, I mean, I think to live in Maine, you have to be really creative anyway. I mean, we have the changes of the season so extreme and you're always, you know, you're preparing. You're always preparing. You're either preparing for winter, getting excited for this, getting through. We used to, we don't have month seasons anymore, but we used to, but, but always trying to prepare and get ready. So you have to be, you have to be multifaceted. And I think that sets up people that, you know, we learn a lot of things. And then you have lots of months that are like, you know, cold and dreary and, what are you going to do? Stay inside and create something. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 284, Gardener, Drama, and Dining, airing for the first time on Sunday, February 26, 2017. Located on the Kennebec River, the town of Gardner is one of Maine's hidden gems, originally a center of industry and known worldwide for exporting ice in the 1800s. Gardner is now home to the iconic A1 Diner and the up-and-coming Johnson Hall Performing Arts Center. Today we speak with Michael Guyberson and Neil Anderson, who have owned the A1 Diner for almost three decades, and with Michael Micklon, the Executive and Artistic Director at Johnson Hall. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at Aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live, a day of insightful talks by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state, are on sale now. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers for a day that will inspire conversation and connection. This fourth Maine Live is on Thursday, March 30th at USM's Abramson Center. Go to mainliveevent.com for more information and to purchase your tickets. Anyone who's ever been through Gardner is aware of the A1 Diner, which is quite the landmark. And today it's my great privilege to have with me Michael Guyberson and Neil Anderson, who own the A1 Diner in Gardner. In April, they'll celebrate 29 years of ownership of the diner, making them the longest-running owners of the 1946 Worcester dining car. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's hard to believe. We think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming in and talking to us about this, because it's kind of an us, interesting yeah. subject, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, why diners? Oh. Well, my dad owned the diner, 
and he bought it as a retirement business and soon found out it was not a retirement business. <laughs> and he owned it for nine years. Neil and I had lived together in Boston, and we had wanted to open a little breakfast restaurant in Boston, but neither one of us had two pennies. <laughs> and I had moved to L.A. for a short time, and Neil was still in Boston, and I called my dad one day, and he said... I'm going to sell the diner. And I said, well, maybe I'll come home for that. So that's kind of where it all started. So, Michael, you were actually born in Gardner when there was a regional medical center I there. was. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I'm a native. So how did you end up, how did the two of you end up meeting? You said you spent time in Boston. You were both out of the state of Maine for a while. We, I grew up in Massachusetts. I was born in, in Massachusetts, and we worked together at uh, Shall we say it? Legal seafood, yes. Uh, <laughs> so that's where we met, and we worked together there for a while, and then we worked together at another restaurant that is now defunct, uh, and that was what was happening. Yeah. yeah. So it was in the blood. So it's kind of a commitment to, to work in food and food service and hospitality. I mean, it's something that you it has to be a conscious decision if you're going to do it as long as you've done it. I think it was kind of an unconscious decision well, at the time because well, we were both pretty... <laughs> it, it would be conscious now. It was... Uh, yeah. I, can, I grew up in the restaurant business. My aunt and uncle owned a restaurant, and I worked there when I was a junior high, high school kid. I learned a lot of different stuff from my aunt, who taught me bookkeeping and doing the payroll and all that kind of stuff. And So it was kind of in my blood, plus I've always cooked since I was a kid. But there was really no conscious intention to end up in a diner. We just, just by chance, we ended right. up there. Right. And my grandparents were caterers on the South Shore, so... It, I mean, I grew up in a house that had catering equipment in the basement that I would play with pots and pans and stuff. And my grandmother was a great cook. So, yeah. And then I worked as a bartender and, a, you know, scooping ice cream at Friendly's just from the ground up. Absolutely. So were there detours before you got to the place of deciding, okay, this is what we really want to do? Uh, I mean, just the, the path of life that you take along until you're, you know, I was 25 or 26 and you were 36. So still both relatively young. I think ownership wasn't, you know, we had talked about it would be fun to do something, but it wasn't like, oh, we've got to own our own place. It just sort of came upon us, and then you seize that opportunity. So there's something really special about diners that keeps us interested, I think. Um, there's a really rich history there. How much of that did you know about before you started this business? Uh, I think we knew a little bit. I mean, I did from my dad having the business, but I wasn't around when he had the business, so I wasn't really into the history of the whole thing or didn't know that much about the diner industry as a whole. And then once you're in it, then all of a sudden you become aware of, oh, there's all these books about diners and people that are interested in diners, and it's kind of like a cult of diner with some people. They'll travel 100 miles out of their way to go to a diner. Yeah, and I think it's cyclical. I think when we started it, you know, it had faded because it was big in the 40s and 50s when the, you know, cars were just starting and people were traveling. And then in the 70s and the early 80s, it had sort of faded out, but it was almost the starting of the renaissance of people buying old diners. There was a place called the Flash in the Pan that we used to go to on Route 1. Yeah. That was that was one of the early places, and we were like, oh, diners can be cool. You can serve good food in a diner. This place is great. And that was a big inspiration to us. So, And then I think we've seen it sort of cycle. And then coming up now with Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, that's, I think, the renaissance is in full bloom again, which is wonderful because these are historic places that are special, I think, and they need to be saved and appreciated. And, yeah, 
And they are special because we've seen whole generations cycle through that diner. We've seen young couples get engaged there, have kids. Their kids have worked for us, you know. So and it's, they have kids. Mm. Yeah, and we've heard so many stories from people tell us how special it is to come to the diner as a child and then come as a teenager and come as an adult. I mean, myself, I hung out in that diner. It was the it was the junior high after school hangout when I was a kid, because you'd go in there with very little money and you'd get a coke and you'd play the jukebox and you'd get some French fries and that was the place to be. So what is it about your diner that um, keeps people, aside from obviously the social element and the culture of it, what keeps them coming back? What's the mystique of the diner? Well, food. I, I, I think it's... Yeah, let's say first and yeah, foremost, I think yeah, food. I think yeah. we've, we serve good food and we serve honest food and we have a great variety of things. I think we've sort of found that sweet spot between diner classics and interesting contemporary food so I mean it's a restaurant people come there to eat most importantly so and it's important to have a variety I mean we have everything you'd expect to find in a diner but in a small town in Maine in midwinter you have to do everything you can to encourage every customer to come in and having a real variety on the menu does yeah. that. Vegetarian food, fresh. ethnic food, yeah. regional food. And that's something that we were always interested in. That was We knew from the start that, that what we would have to do to keep us interested and to keep us there. We couldn't just do the standards. We, we had to hopefully step it up a little bit. Plus, we watched my dad struggle because his, his business was kind of dying because it was very traditional. His clientele was elderly. His biggest time of the month was when Social Security checks came out. So we obviously knew we had to change that business model in order to succeed. And we managed to do it. Just first, we just kind of tweaked his menu and made better quality of what he was doing. And then we started introducing our own type of cooking. So if someone were to visit the diner today and say, as a vegetarian myself, and I haven't been to the diner for a few years now, but what could I expect to see there? Well, there's always the ever-changing menu boards on the wall, and they have a bunch of vegetarian stuff on them usually. There's a lot of vegetarian stuff just permanently on the menu. There's some Asian noodle dishes, there's a variety of salads, um, there's a veggie burger. And then the a lot of the soups are vegetarian and of course we try to keep a lot of the specials vegetarian too. Because even though there's a ton of carnivores in the world, even the carnivores want to eat less meat now. You know, they like to mix it up just because it, they yeah. know it's healthier. There's always curries, I mean, vegetable stews. Yeah. We've got these gorgonzola rice cake cakes that have grilled portobello mushrooms on them. So there's, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Well, now I can't believe I haven't been there in a while. I, I feel <laughs> we like can't I, either, Exactly. I, I'm going to have to make a trip up there very soon <laughs> just, just to have the vegetarian food. <laughs> now, a lot of people know Gardner as um, it's, it's kind of a place in between. A lot of people, there's a lot of people who will drive through, and obviously you can't really drive through Gardner without seeing the A1 Diner. Um, but to you, Michael, this is this is, this is is it. This is where you were born. Mm -hmm. This is where you were originally from. You spent the first 17 years there. Yep. And then you've come back there. And Neil, you've made a conscious decision to be there. Mm -hmm. Since 86, yeah. So what's so special about Gardner? It's really a great little community. We've kind of watched it struggle. Of course, when I was a kid, it was a thriving community because there were all there were three big shoe factories the downtown had everything you could imagine and you, you you didn't really have to go anywhere to get anything in the 50s and 60s then those towns all those mill towns started to die and fade away and when we got there 
the downtown was pretty bleak. And slowly over the last 29 years, we've seen it come back. Uh, the community itself has great housing stock. There are beautiful old homes, quiet neighborhoods. Uh, it's really a beautiful town situated on the river mm. and on the Carbacy Stream. Uh, the city's done a great job uh, building new waterfront area, connecting to the rail trail to Augusta. We're building a new trail up the Carbacy Stream. So it, it, it's a great community, yeah. and Johnson Hall is a, a huge factor, a huge factor. And it's a member of the Gardner, uh, of the Main Street community in Maine, which has we've been involved in in the beginning. So it's, yeah, it's sort of like quintessential small town Maine that's sort of reinventing itself. Um, absolutely. And it's really wonderfully centrally located. I love the fact that we can get to Rockland or Camden or Brunswick or Portland or, you know, there's any number of places you can go. It's very centrally located without having to drive. You can get to Bar Harbor or Belfast or it's, it's terrific. So, Michael, your family, how did they come to be in Gardner? Uh, my mother's family was, has been in Gardner for generations. My dad's family, uh, his parents both came through Canada and into the U.S. My dad's father died when he was a kid, uh, but they met and... High school sweethearts, huh? Yeah, my parents were high school sweethearts. My dad was the captain of the football team, and they were married for, you know, until my dad died for 60 years. So they've, they've always been Gardner people. And what about you, Neely? As, as somebody who's not of the, of originally of mm -hmm. the Gardner community, obviously now very much a part of the Gardner community, how has that f felt to come in from the outside? Uh, terrific. It's funny. Now that I think I've lived the majority of my life in Gardner as opposed to the town that I grew up in. And like I was just in Massachusetts and in Boston, you know, dealing with my mom and stuff. And when I come back, I'm always so happy that I made this decision. I think the time was right. Uh, it feels it feels very much like home to me. You know, it's, you lay down your roots and when you're 25, that's... You know, you haven't really quite decided who you are, and then it sort of unfolds in front of you, and this is where it's happened. So, no, I'm thrilled to be there. I mean, yeah, you got to love what you do and be happy where you are. The restaurant business can be challenging, especially if you're talking in the middle of Maine in the middle of the winter. Um, but there's something about what you're doing that's kept you interested, in not only for the 29 years that you've had the A1 Diner, but prior to that and the time that you spent in the other restaurants. And I think, Neil, you still also work in mm -hmm. yeah. another restaurant. Yeah. So w why do you keep coming back? What is it that keeps drawing you? Well, I think the basic thing is the love of food and the community that happens around a diner, is, uh, around any restaurant yeah. is great with, with the staff, with your customers. I mean, most of the people we know in Central Maine, we know through the diner. Uh, and you know, you meet friends that way. You meet new acquaintances. You meet famous people. You meet travelers. Uh, it's very, very interesting just to go out into the diner, because I'm, you know, I'm isolated in the kitchen most of the time. But I do wander out front and I strike up conversations. And it's always amazing to hear people's stories and where they've come from and where they're going. And yeah, you're either cut out for it or you're not, and you know that. And there are people that get into it and they realize, oh, I can't do this. And I've you had lots of, you know, people that use it as a stepping stone to get somewhere else, you know, waiting on tables, things like that. And then there are those of us that are kind of lifers, and it is, it's in you, it's your personality. And I think you have to have an affinity for people and hard work 
and the challenges that they present you. And it's certainly not for everyone. I mean, I know I, I couldn't imagine myself working in a cubicle or an office or being really isolated. I'd lose my mind. It would just make me crazy. So it, you just figure it out, I think. So are there those two of the characteristics, people that have an affinity for others, but also people who are used to hard work? I mean, it helps, and it doesn't mean that people who don't work in the restaurant industry aren't hard workers, you know. But it's it's physically grinding too. It's it's it takes its toll on you. It's you know, and it's nonstop. It never really stops. And, and when you're the owner, you're you're really married to it. I mean, we luckily live less than a half a mile from the diners, so if there's a problem, I can be down there in a couple minutes. And my crew knows that, and they don't hesitate to call, which is great because I want to be involved and I want to help them out in situations, everything from the credit card machine not working or a leaky pipe or, you know, whatever. So, but you really are a slave to your business when you own something like that. Well, it sounds like it's almost like having a, a child or... That never grows <clears> up. Yeah. <laughs> never grows up. Never. Uh, okay. Gets, gets older, but never grows up. <laughs> right. So what are some of the things that you've learned specifically from owning your own business versus working within the industry? Uh, hmm. That's a tough one. Yeah, really. Um, I mean, I, I feel like staying focused on what we do best we've tried to branch off and do other things and they've been somewhat successful but we've always come back to the core of the diner and that's when we've been the happiest and the most successful so I really feel like just you know having that focus on the thing that you do and do it as well as you possibly can I mean I think the, the working for other business other restaurants have helped me be a better owner I think they work in tandem I don't see them as sort of completely separate entities to me, I mean, I think being a diner owner makes me a better employee for someone else, and being an employee for someone else hopefully makes me a better diner owner because I see it from both angles. It's been so long since I've been an employee, I don't really remember. <laughs> He'd probably be a terrible employee now because he's worked for himself for so long. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's interesting because I know owning your own business, I mean, it's great because you're your own boss, but then you're it. Yeah, you know, the right. box stops yeah. with no, you, yeah. and that's yeah. its own set of stressors because there's nobody yeah. else to wake right. up in the that, middle of the night and worry that, about that, whether the And people don't understand them. that, yeah, that your whole life is on the line and everything that you have and you own and you do, you know, it rises and falls with the success of your business. And really that's, you know, that's another driver to make the business successful <laughs> is because that's a huge chunk of our retirement is when we sell that business. So we have to maintain it. We have to keep improving the building, the kitchen. The I mean, we have two old buildings, the diner itself, 1946, but our kitchen building is from the late 1800s. They used to work on model keys in our kitchen. It used to be a garage. There were gas pumps out front. So it's been a challenge. And when we inherited, or not inherited, but when we bought that building, it was really ancient and decrepit, especially the kitchen building. It's taken us 30 years to, to modernize it, and mm. we're still working on it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, when we have people in, we always ask, who who do you think would be, um, should get some recognition for what they're doing in their community? So you s actually suggested um, Tom Harnett, or maybe it's Harnett? I'm not... I think, I think it's Harnett. Harnett, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you you suggested your, and you called him Gardner's Great Mayor. Yeah. We've actually had a couple of great mayors. We've Andy. Yeah, we have. Andy McLean, who was the mayor before this, was terrific, great. But And Tom has been now 
Yeah. He's a great and guy. Brian, and Brian Rines. And Brian Rines, right. who have done a lot for the town. Yeah. Just good, Solid even people. Yep, even yeah. keel, like inclusive, wonderful people who care about their community, but, you know, are, are like the best of what a politician can be, I think. So tell me about that. I mean, in a small town, it must have, there must be some. Well, I guess you're not that small, but in a smallish community, there must be some challenges with being the mayor and to be able to maintain the kind of relationship that he obviously has with his community and deserve this recognition. How does he accomplish that and still move things forward? Well, being in a small town, you know, it's just like being in a bigger political sphere. There are the the people who want to do stuff and the people who don't want to do stuff. There are the people who cling to the past that don't want anything to change. And that's always a challenge. I was on the council for two years, and I saw that living proof of that, that there are people who, no matter what you want to do, there are people who really don't want to do it or they want to drag their feet doing it. So that is a challenge. And I think Tom and the previous mayors have realized that and worked towards goals that were achievable and built coalitions that made that happen and worked with the council to do that. In a town like Gardner, which has been evolving since it's not any longer dependent upon um, industry the way that it once was, what do you see the needs as being? You said that you've worked with uh, Main Street, and this is all about trying to evolve small towns Mm. in the state of Maine. So what do you perceive needs to happen so that Gardner and other towns like it can move forward? Well, I think it is happening. I mean, there's a new medical center that's being built that's going to have some housing. That will be a big deal. And, of course, the other side of this interview is Johnson Hall, which I think will be a huge key part in the cultural center. And that will, you know, when that's up and running, when the the big theater is running and they're having a a constant, you know, stream of great shows in, it's going to be bringing people into the community. And then that, I think, organically grows small businesses and other restaurants and, you know, things of that nature. I mean, so to me, the arts part of it is huge. I mean, there are are people in any town who don't care about the downtown. They don't think it's necessary. But it really is the heart and soul of the community. And if you have a downtown that really is dying, that says a lot about the community. I mean, the building next to us used to be a drugstore, and for years after the drugstore on our business, it was boarded up. And what signal does that send to people who pass through the community when the the main building at the main intersection in town is a boarded up building? You know, so there, you know, that there are a lot of things that are challenging to a small town in a downtown like that, that, uh, need to be resolved and it takes the work of the whole community to do that and it's very incremental it does not happen overnight as we've seen it's like two steps forward one step back you know all the time and it but slowly it is turning around we've got a brand new co-op in Gardner we have some new businesses opening Uh, people are developing the upper floors of the of the main street for housing you know so all of those things I think it's tinkering with the mix of sort of retail in a downtown of what you know, is is necessary that can be supported 365 days a year, and then other smaller businesses that are a little more specialized. So it's it's got to be a mix, I think, and that's challenging. So when you have um, a town like Gardner that is not coastal and it does attract people during the summer, but I'm guessing there isn't quite as much of a shift from a tourist standpoint as some parts of Maine. Mm. Um, how how do you I guess um, try to convince people that you're still open for business in Well, February. I think uh, one of the things that's really helped us is both the highways come to Gardner. 
and the old coastal route before they built the new bridge in Augusta was to get off the highway in Gardner and if you go into on Route 9 or Route 17 you drive through Gardner and I think that's one of the things that's really helped the, the town itself and it is really touristy you know unlike the coast which is always touristy uh, Tourists have discovered Central Maine more and are branching away from the crowded areas of the coast a lot. And a lot of people who come back year after year want to explore more, so they discover these towns that are away from the coast. So all of those things have helped. Yeah, and this region, where we are, there's a ton of lakes and ponds, so there's a ton of summer people that come in that have summer camps and homes. Mm-hmm. So you see a big swell. I don't think it's as dramatic as it is, say, in places like Booth Bay, where it just closes down and goes to nothing. So that's actually to our advantage, mm-hmm. I think. We are a year-round community. Um, but also, I mean, using things like social media, and you know, we've been very fortunate to have a lot of great press, and we have you know, an Instagram account and a Facebook account. So people, and people like to be in touch that way. They like, you know, I mean, there's tons of people who will comment or follow us that live on the other side of the country or somewhere else, but they come here in the summer and they want to keep in touch and see what's going on. And so I think that is a constant reminder, and that's worked greatly to our advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and being a, well, being on diners, drive-ins, and well, and we huge. did have a ton huge. of crazy media coverage, which was amazing. And like I said before, every you need everything you can get in a small town in Maine in the winter. And we had, you know, we've been in the New York Times, we've been on. The Food Network. We've been in major magazines. It's it's been amazing. It's kind of a snowball thing because we don't go looking for any of that publicity. It just kind of happens, and it's great. And I think part of that is the resurgence and the popularity of diners. Yeah, people are interested. You know, people are interested, and plus, it's a you know, it's a it's a great building. It's a beautiful building just to come and look at it. It's you know, when you think it was built in 1946 and it's been used hard every day, and it's still standing it's pretty amazing do you think that you in addition to getting people who come back because they have some nostalgia about what's happened in their past do you think that you're also getting a younger generation that really never knew any of the stuff we are seeing more and more that i see so many young couples in and and teenagers in 20s it's amazing i'm all i'm always so happy because i didn't ever want it to be the stodgy old folks place, you know, where the old guys came in and sat and had coffee all afternoon and smoked cigarettes. And we see more and more young people. It's great. And I always just am so happy when I see that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a, it is a great mix. And we certainly have lots of, of elderly clientele that we love. Oh, and yeah. they're the yeah. heart and soul of the lunch crowd. And they're, they're wonderful. And they have the time to spend. Um, but I think there's young people making their own memories now and creating their own experiences. And I think they want a more genuine experience as opposed to sort of a generic cookie cutter, fast food, faux chain, you know what I mean? That's the same everywhere. This is something that's kind of unique and a little bit more individual and hopefully a little more special, mm-hmm. you know? And I think they're staking that claim for themselves, which is great. And I think that's some of what's driven young people to move to Gardner too from out of state in Southern Maine is a lot of people who grow up in big urban areas don't want their kids to grow up in that same situation. They want to move somewhere that they can have more of a sense of place and have a downtown that they can call their own and raise their kids in a small community. And I think we've seen a pretty large influx of people from away who are you know doing that. So you're celebrating 29 years in April. 
and you probably have a few really good years ahead of you. Quite a few, I'm guessing, because you're both young. A couple. <laughs> okay, well, from a couple probably to Probably a lot of years and at least a few good ones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what would you like to see happen? What is your hope for yourselves and also for the A1 Diner? Well, we have a challenge coming up because the bridge that the diner sits on is going to be uh, replaced in 2019, and it's a huge project because all the utilities for... Uh, power company and the phone company and the gas company all run under that bridge. So and we a, sit right on that bridge. Right. So we're going to be closed for a little bit in 2019. We don't really know the details of it yet uh, because the final plan isn't done. Uh, we'll be closed for a couple months maybe. We're not really sure. So that's going to kind of give us a chance to reassess where we are and what the future is. And, you know, I'm coming up on wanting to retire. And probably after that diner is reopened after the bridge thing happens we'll put the diner on the market and we have two or three people who are already interested and I'm sure if it was public we'd have even more people interested but my goal is to turn the diner over to someone who loves it like we do I wouldn't sell it to just anyone I want to sell it to someone who uh, loves it for what it is and wants to continue the tradition of great food there yeah, very hand, it's going to have to be someone very hands-on, owner-operated, I think. So, But I, I would agree. Yeah, that, that sounds reasonable to me. Mm. I'll probably continue to work elsewhere for a while. But, it would, yeah, I think we've earned it. <laughs> yeah. I would say you have. Yeah. 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 I'll make sure that I make it back over there <laughs> yeah. before, you, before you close down You've got plenty of time. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Trust and then me. before yeah. you retire. Yeah, yeah. you've definitely yeah. got yeah. plenty of yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. I've been speaking with Michael Guyberson and Neil Anderson, who own the A1 Diner in Gardner, and who in April will celebrate 29 years of ownership. I really appreciate your taking the time out of your very busy schedules to come and have this conversation with me, and I also appreciate the um, community that you've continued to contribute to and create within your own diner. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you. for having us. It's, it's oh, great fun. Yeah. Thank you. Terrific. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. Today in the studio with me, I have Michael Micklon, the Executive and Artistic Director at Johnson Hall Performing Arts Center in Gardner, who has been a professional entertainer since 1982. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. So you really have a lot of um, things on your list. You've, yes. You've done and been, <laughs> done so many things, yep, been so yep. many places. Sure. 
Yeah. But you grew up in Buckfield. I did, and, and that's really, uh, it was a huge opportunity to grow up in that little town, which really didn't have a lot else going on. So um, Celebration Barn Theater is about 15 minutes away, and some performers, people came from all over the world to study there. And luckily for me, two of them landed in Buckfield, decided to build a house there, Benny and Denise Real. And they had a uh, traveling show called the Buckfield Leather and Lather Traveling Variety Show. It was a remake of an old vaudeville show where they actually made leather products and sold those and then did live shows a la like uh, old medicine shows and they were just amazing and so I grew up watching them and then Denise in 1982 um, uh, decided to teach the drama class at my high school and so I was one of those naughty class clown kids that no one knew what to do with and they were like maybe if we get him into drama it'll give him something to do and I did and uh, actually that same year Patrick Dempsey Dr. McDreamy we both uh, were encouraged to take her class and both like I always say our careers have just paralleled each other you know right along <laughs> so are you a different sort of McDreamy are you like yes I'm, I'm a yes I'm a McLon he's a McDreamy yeah oh, okay. I uh, yeah I always want I love uh, live theater more than I mean that that's really what my my goal was was I wanted to do what Ben and Denise were doing and I really focused on that so I really started performing right away once I I started an apprenticeship with them at the end of that year they asked me to apprentice with them uh, I had no idea what that meant but I said yes immediately and basically what it meant is they trained me in you know performance and juggling comedy mime vaudeville improvisation you name it and I would stack firewood and paint their deck babysit their kids do all that in trade uh, and it was amazing because I could have never have afforded um, to pay for the education that I got I did that for six years with them so it was great so why live why a live theater versus going the mcdreamy direction sure i i love that connection with an, a, a live audience i've always loved that 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 you get to affect the people that are coming into the room um i do love film and i love that kind of work um but it's a very different experience and i also love that for the audience they get to uh, they get to affect you. See, that's the other part is that, you know, their laughter and applause or lack of laughter and applause uh, makes a difference, makes you work harder, makes you try to find that connection. And I'd love to find uh, the connection with a live audience. And it's just always been, you know, I did it any, I was, I would say I was the youngest of five kids. So I was sort of born with an audience. So I always wanted to get that reaction and then went to school and found a bigger audience. And um, so once it was actually controlled and I could actually, uh, you know, use techniques and, and actually learn. It was great. I love to do it. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of interested about, you know, to hear about this because I don't think of, well, tell me a technique. What would be a technique for trying to connect better connect with, with the audience? So uh, there's a variety of different things you can do. One is, is that, is as you uh, approach your audience, as you, when you, how you come out onto the stage uh, is one of the key things. And, and it's in a lot of ways you, you come out, try to sort of seek permission to be there so you come out and you you look for ways as, as quickly as you can uh, to make a connection with either a, a specific audience member or as the group but you go out and you really are looking you know it's very different than stand-up where you're just it's like battle like you got to go out and you got to strike first this is more uh, the the style of entertainment I do is you go out and you're really trying to get permission you're trying to get a, a buy-in from your audience so you find different ways whether it's to come out you do a trick for them or you come out and you you know do uh, an introduction that really is you know just designed to to make a connection with your audience and then once you have it once you've gotten that first step then you go a little further a little further and and a lot of the, the live stuff that we do involves actually pulling people from the audience right up onto the stage and interacting with them there and and, and really I always 
always look at everything I do is what they call fourth wall down, which is which there is no barrier between us and the audience. Like a play is fourth wall up. Everything we do is fourth wall down. So really getting out there and making that that instant connection. Yeah. So is there a relationship between the type of work you do and improvisational theater? Absolutely. I mean, improv is key because if you don't, if you you have to be able to change direction if it's not going the way you want it to. So if it's if you're not making that connection, you've got to be able to shift gears as quickly as you can. So sort of trusting um, my one of my main teachers was Tony Montanaro, and and he always talked about we. Fortunately, he said when you start to recognize it, you get a, a, you know hundreds of impulses a, a second. You're getting all kinds of options and as you train you start to learn to take the best ones the ones if you're trying to do comedy you'll take the the ones that lean towards the quickest you know the quickest laugh and i've really been able to hone that skill over the last you know few decades of, of really trying to get it so that as quickly as possible people talk about oh, you're so quick and it's like well it's really a training it's about doing it over and over and over and trying to find those those uh those best impulses that come in so as part of it trying to um understand what's going on behind behind the eyes of the people that are in front of you exactly i mean you you learn to i mean when <clears throat> we always talk about we're mimes and mimes have such the worst you know they're given the worst rap in the world um but but mime really is about is is about studying humans whether it's their emotion their you know and being able to mimic it that's the that's the term and so you really learn to read people so that's one of the key things is is being able to look at your audience and you can body language is huge and i always for me personally and it's become sort of the mission as i go i look for the guy that's not laughing that's got his arms crossed that's not sitting up and my goal is by the you know as soon as i can to have engaged that person got them to minimally uncross their arms because crossed arms is so such a sign of like you're not getting to me I'm protected and then once they once they relax and you you know they realize you're not you know it's not a stand-up show where you're trying to zing them you're just trying to build a relationship so I'm always looking for that so it's really about building you know and, and, and understanding um, body language and seeing what they're doing you know laughter's easy because if they're laughing it's great but I'm always looking for the people that aren't and see if I can get to them so I'm interested in this because I when I I give presentations I give sure. talks and oftentimes to doctors sure and they are they're very much known for the crossed yes. arm not all yep. of us yep. but you know yep. they're exactly. known for the crossed, crossed arms, arms a little bit skeptical exactly. you know very much in their heads yep, yep. and so if you're dealing with a, a doctor who's doing right. that and maybe sure. I'm that doctor in the right audience, right right. Yeah, how would, how would you approach it? Well, that's why you know they talk a lot of times. It's like talking about leading with a joke. So laughter is 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 so wonderful because laughter really is a surprise. Like that's we, we laugh because we're surprised at something. And once you're surprised, you, you're you're rocking people off. I feel like you're rocking them off their defenses once you're surprised. So it's really trying to find that opening, that opening line, that opening connection that you can make. If you can get to them, if you can give them that and get them to laugh nine times out of ten, they'll, they'll start to, they'll, they will relax. Their arms, you know, their arms will drop and they'll start to be like, okay. And, and it's really about going, oh, we're on the same team. If, if an audience feels like it's a combative situation, if they feel like, uh, you know, they've got to, they've got to defend themselves, uh, it's a tougher, it's a tougher road. That's why I, I don't do stand up. I love stand up. I don't do stand up because it's not in my nature to, 
because a lot of comedians talk about you know you've got to they, they Jerry Seinfeld always says you know we our, our terms are we we slayed them we killed them uh, you know and and those terms are really specific because it's like if we don't they'll do it to us but in the style of of um, family I, I call it family entertainment but it's it's really it's it's a it's just a um, it's cleaner material it's more. Uh, audience oriented rather than just one liners it's about connecting so I, I try I'm always trying to find that way to, to get that connection and I love that's why I love that style of, of entertainment where does something like juggling come in yeah so well for me juggling was the reason to get on stage so I, I didn't have all the jokes yet I didn't have all the stuff but maybe if I could impress you so juggling is it was initially for me when I when I started learning it and that was one of the first skills that that Benny and Denise real taught me was to juggle and and of course then that gave me all kinds of confidence because it was something I'd seen it was something that was seemed so difficult and then once I learned it I was like hey maybe I can do other things um, but juggling is a great way because you can come out with the idea I'm going to show you something and then you can practice everything from you know from when you walk out to when you throw that first trick is your your opportunity to try those jokes and try those connections and then sometimes if you just do a trick like I have a, my oldest son is an amazing juggler he can juggle seven of anything um, and has worked on nine and he's incredible and he doesn't want to talk to anybody he doesn't want to talk on stage doesn't want to do it so he says I go out and I do it with I do it with the tricks I do it with you know I do something really difficult and then he'll stop and look at the audience to try to go what did you think? And actually asking them in a, in a nonverbal way, did you enjoy that? And that's his way of getting that connection. So juggling for me was a way to get out on stage and then try all the comedy parts. But for him, it's the reverse. It's like it's a chance not to have to say anything. But yeah. Where does he fall in your lineup of children? He's my oldest. My oldest. He learned to juggle when he was five. He watched me like uh, from uh, from a baby. I have tons of video of him before he could walk. He would grab two of anything and try. He wouldn't throw them, but he would mimic the motion. So from zero to five, he was he was really living it but wasn't actually doing it so when he's turned five and it's very hard to teach young kids to juggle but he it was it was just in his body so within a uh, within a week he'd learn how to juggle three balls at age five and now he lives in new york city and does he was he's going to be in an episode of mozart in the jungle <laughs> as a juggler i uh, love that for, show. yeah so he's in uh, season two episode nine okay i'm gonna look for that look now. for that that's shane mclon he is like Randy the ring juggler or something. I don't know. But but it's cool. But he gets he gets lots of work. He does lots of circus like uh artistic circus Cirque du Soleil type of performances and uh he was on Rachel Ray, which was a odd experience, but fun. Yeah. And so, yeah. so I'm assuming if you have an oldest, you must have other children. I do. My middle son also lives in uh, Brooklyn, and he just graduated from the New York Conservatory of the Dramatic Arts uh, a year ago. So they live there, and they do do at work together and do shows. And then my youngest uh, actually uh, is not in the performing world at all, can juggle seven balls, can do all kinds of stuff, has no desire to be on stage and at what, all. what does he? He is a, he is a butcher. <laughs> yep, as uh, a baby and a baby on the way, and uh, very happily married, and and doesn't likes to watch his brothers, but doesn't want to get on stage himself. So that's interesting because I was thinking about what you said about the youngest, yeah. and how you're the youngest of five. I know. So you're watching and yep. you're interacting, and that engagement's really important for you. Yep. Did that in any way play itself out with your youngest? No, because well, the interesting thing was is that so they grew up in the Oddfellow Theater. That was my theater in Buckfield. They grew up there. 
And for the older two, they, we, we had people coming from all over the world that ended up in Buckfield doing shows at my theater. And we had people that were in Cirque du Soleil and people that were on Broadway. And it just, that's with the connections that I had there, people, we'd get people to come in and just do guest spots or do their shows. My older two saw that as inspirational. They saw that as like, wow, I can do anything. These guys have showed me the way. My youngest son saw it as I could never be that good. Which is which is very strange because usually youngest's are uh, like me where you know where he is funny but he um, he gets he gets panicked being on stage it it just it eats him up he can't do it the other two just live and breathe it they don't even what what my oldest son does on stage I mean I mean the 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 ridiculous difficulty and he mixes it with a lot of dance and and movement so it's 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 not just coming out and juggling it's it's whole full routines it's thought up choreography and it's so difficult like i know i'm a juggler so i mean i can juggle five but not i I can't do anything to the extent he can do it but i watch him and i often wonder he's making it look so smooth that when the audience watches it they don't understand the level of difficulty which is great which is what our job is supposed to be but my son my youngest just sort of sees it all as like just knots him up even from when he used to do high school plays and he basically did those just so he could be around who was going to be his future wife. So, but he didn't really want to. He didn't want to do it for me. I just, for me, I just wanted. I just wanted to be on stage all the time, any opportunity, any opportunity. When I did that first year, um, they, they did, we did three plays. I was, I got a lead in one, but they needed a dead body in the other one, and and I was the only person that volunteered. So I was like, that's how my my how Denise knew that I was destined to stay in the arts. Is, I was because, willing to be because dead. you so wanted to be on stage. I didn't you care were willing what to be capacity. A dead body. I was good too. I didn't move. I didn't do anything. <laughs> so. See, I think I find this so interesting because it, there, it seems as though there are kids that it's just like from the moment they like pop out. Exactly. They yep. they are somehow inclined to be whether exactly. it's in the arts or music, theater, yep. photography, whatever sure. it is. Yep. That's that's where they are. Right. And, and if they're fortunate enough to be in a family where right. that's the business, yep. then that they can kind of... That's what they can do. Yeah. They can do that. Yep. If you're not, then it's very interesting. You're right. Then you have to... And my family, my parents were, I mean, they were, my dad was a teacher. My mom worked at the local phone company. But they were very, my dad, I always say, could out, you know, he, he could tell a story better than anybody. He was fantastic. So I, and they both have a really good sense of humor, but didn't really do you know my mother was a dancer when she was younger and all that stuff but basically you know by the time i came into the picture they were just two working people with five kids so it wasn't yeah i really had to i had to i knew i had a a spark for it but i didn't even know i didn't know what to do with it so i that's why i would just thank god that i came across benny and denise because they knew they saw it and were like okay you got to do this so then i took on apprentices myself over throughout the years going I've got to be able to pass that on and do that same thing, and and all the people that I've that I chose to work with are all doing it professionally now, so it's great. So, does this drive you in the work that you do with the Johnson Hall Performing Arts Center sure. in Gardner? Yeah, I mean, you, you told me that you need to raise. I think it's four point three. Four point three total. We're, yep, dollars? we're about one point eight in. <laughs> yep, and uh, we have to raise four point three. So the the connection to that spaces i had run my theater and i decided to to close the the odd fellow theater in buckfield thought i was done running a theater i decided to make a film so i made a, a feature length film um a comedy which was really fun uh but then um 
I, I'd heard through the grapevine, the theater grapevine, that they were looking for a new executive director for Johnson Hall. They'd gone through about a year of, uh, and they'd narrowed it down to a couple of different folks. And in the end, neither one of them panned out. <laughs> the, the two people that they chose, uh, one lady decided last minute she didn't want to move to Maine, and the other guy, uh, I don't, I don't know what the details was, but he didn't take it. So they were still looking, and I said, well, you know what? And they'd already gone through this whole process. I'd never put my name in, and then I, I uh, made a connection. They brought me in, I interviewed, and then they hired me the next day. But the cool connection is is that Benny and Denise Real had left Buckfield in the late 80s to go, and they actually purchased Johnson Hall. And they were part of that whole resurgence, formed the nonprofit that I now work for now. Uh, and Denise actually stayed on working there for about 25 years. Benny passed away in 2005, but had been a, a major part of that program. So I went there to go, like, I want to continue their work, and I want to get their theater done. Um, but all of this stuff, and, and definitely improv is a major part of it, but the work that we do there has been, is, is you know, because I believe that live arts are essential to humanity. I think it is that thing I was talking about is that, you know, you put, it's this weird agreement that you go, hundreds of people are going to come together in a room and not like rush the stage. We have a, we understand. I'll sit here, I'll watch you do stuff. If I like it, I'll slap my hands together and we'll call it good. And And it's an amazing, I just, I think it's an incredible um, uh, exchange, uh, you know, and and what our job is, my job is, is to bring in really great people. When I was in Buckfield, I did, I was in about eighty percent of the shows. In Gardner, it's, I, I don't, I barely perform. I introduce all the shows and do that, but I really wanted to concentrate on the producing end of it. And really, w- before I got there, we only did about twelve shows a year. So now this year. Uh, we added films in. We're doing about seventy, so we it was really about expanding the program and getting it up to a to, to a standard, um, and that's been huge because we've the we do everything that we do on the first floor of Johnson Hall, but the 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 actual theater, it's the oldest opera house in the state of Maine, is on the third floor, and it's been sitting un, untouched basically since the fifties. So that's what we're working to renovate. So we'll go from about 125 seats on the first floor to 400 seats on the third floor. And then we'll run both theaters at the same time. So it's pretty neat. So this is in Gardner, which yep. um, is certainly busier than Buckfield. Yes. Just geographically. Yeah, it has, it has and street lamps. And yes, exactly. And restaurants. And <laughs> but yes. that's still a lot of seats that you're talking about. And yeah. ha- have you been successful in drawing the numbers that you want so far? We have. Yeah. My, uh, so the again, before I, I started there, we averaged about 450 people per year. <laughs> so with 12 shows, wasn't great. Uh, my first year, we did 32 shows. We got about a little over 1,600 people. Next year, we had 37 shows. We had about 2,200 people. Last year was 42 shows. We had over 3,000 people. So we just keep, the numbers just keep growing and growing and growing and growing. And now we're getting to the point where people are like, man, you can't get tickets, which is awesome. It's where we wanted to be because everyone was saying, why do you need a third floor theater if you're not filling the first floor? So now we're fortunately packing it in at the at the first floor theater so and i had you know we had to elevate the level of you know we've got dar williams coming in we have we had john gorker chris smither we tried to really upgrade and really my first year was sort of figuring out what do people even want i'm very much a uh like i say that vaudeville style performance but the what sells the best what really does it is the music we get we really people just love to come out for the music we still do a lot of the live variety stuff and we have stand-up and improv shows and things like that but it's we really become a really solid music house so that seems cool so 
I'm fortunate on this show because I get to interview people who are artists and musicians and actors right. and entertainers of various sure. sorts. Yep. And I'm constantly amazed that that the arts are so alive and rich and present. Yeah. It, it's not like we have a history of arts in Maine. It's sure. We have a history and we have a present and we have a future. Sure. And we're still a, a relatively rural state. And you're not talking about Portland. You're right. You're not talking about Bangor. You're talking exactly. about Buckfield. Yep. Gardner. Gardner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's incredible to me. And I have a lot of people that come to Maine, uh, you know, from you know, places like Indiana or, you know, I even have some friends that move from Maine uh, to Austin. And if, it, if you're in the music world, that's great. But if you're in the live theater realm, it, he, was, it, he was just saying it's really hard to find work, let alone get work. But Maine has, has a network of people have just sort of grown up over the years knowing that, sure, you know, you have, you know, whether you're a corporate group, you hire entertainers. And and th- there's these little thriving theaters, and theaters pop up in every form. Mine was an old Oddfellows building. You know, people, if there's a place where people can gather, and Portland is, what I love about Portland is, you know, they don't care. They go, 90 seats, great, we don't care. If that's all we can squeeze in, It'll and it works. And traditionally, if you're under 300 seats, you're asking for it. You'll, I mean, to succeed financially, it's almost impossible under 300 seats. But we've proved around here it's like throw a theater in your living room and that's and that's actually a growing thing that's happening in the state is these living room concert things that people are doing but it's it's i just think that the main arts commission years and years and years and years ago used to have a great thing called the main touring program that they i don't know if they invented it but it was new to us in the state and what it was is that if if anybody if you were hiring main artists and you were connected to a nonprofit you could get uh, these artists at a reduced rate so from one end you know from <laughs> from Kittery to Presque Isle everywhere in between people could bring in artists and they were and there was this book and you'd have to audition and i you know i remember getting in getting into the main touring program was a huge like that was like a stamp that that meant within us as performers or whether you were and, and it was it wasn't just limited to 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 live art it, it could be sculptors and painters and whatever too you could bring them in and they could do work and workshops but it created this idea that you could get these people at a reduced rate. There was the performers were still getting their pay, but the Maine Arts Commission assisted with that. So it it just built this. And then after that program went away, the networks didn't stop. People were like, well I still you know, I still want to bring artists in. And so school shows and, and all that, it just built and built and built and built. And 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 I think it's been a it's it's really the legacy of 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 a lot of the work that the Maine Arts Commission did back in the day because it built this expectation of Oh, you've got to have art, and I think it's. I think it is unique uh, for us because I know, like I said, people that live in New Hampshire, live in Vermont, live in, and it's it's not as easy to find this this steady stream of work that you can get. Do you think, as an artist, that there's also something about the mental space that's available in Maine as sure. opposed to some of the larger <laughs> yes. metropolitan areas? I always areas? go. There's, what else is there to do? Create. You know, I think. I think. I mean. I think to live in Maine, you have to be really creative anyway. I mean, we have the changes of the season so extreme, and you're always, you know, you're preparing. You're always preparing. You're either preparing for winter, getting excited for this, getting through. We used to, we don't have mud seasons anymore, but we used to. But but always trying to prepare and get ready. So you have to be, you have to be multifaceted. And I think that sets up people that, you know, we learn a lot of things. And then you have lots of months that are like, you know, 
cold and dreary and what are you going to do stay inside create something so I, I i'm always amazed and and i think that's what attracts people from other places to maine is that there is this wonderful solitude when you need it and then there's just you know this amazing connectivity throughout the state all year long but particularly when it warms up you can just you know there's so many places to go and do you can recreate yourself or be a part of someone else's recreation and i it's awesome i think it's awesome so as the Executive and artistic director yep. at Johnson Hall and Gardner. Yep. You have a very specific role, and you said that you weren't doing any performances there. Right. But it's still in you because sure. obviously, if you're doing a New Year's Eve performance. Right, right, right. I still perform. Right. I still do shows uh, in other places. I just found it was weird. When I was in Buckfield, it was, I was more performer than executive director. And then when I came to Gardner, I really realized the need to be more focused on the executive director part and and actually building the organization and helping to 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 fortify what we were going to do because if we were going to get to this bigger this bigger goal of running a four I've never run a 400 seat theater I've always run theaters under 200 seats um, and that's a different animal and and I told them very honestly when I took the job that the whole reason I was taking it is that I a wanted to see Benny Denise's theater get done but I also want to experience what it's like to run a 400 seat theater myself I want to know what's that like the level of, of act that I can bring in starts to go way up um, you know we can start to get some really serious with 400 seats you can really start to your your pool of artists start to get a lot bigger uh, and that's really exciting to me. You can really begin to pull some really interesting acts in and different groups from around the country, whereas whereas we're a little bit more limited with a with a small amount of seats. So, but I was like, yeah, but <clears throat> but really focused on the idea that I really have to build. I have to be more the 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 businessman with an artistic sense rather than the artist who's trying to do the business. So, I had to switch my focus a little bit. And yet both require you to be able to read people yep exactly so yeah it really using, does and and to you know yeah I, I feel like i perform a lot we do a lot of what we call house uh um road shows where we do, we are always trying to get one of the things that we realized with johnson hall and and a lot of organizations have this but it's like even in your closest proximity that's where people tend to not know about you they they know of you they don't know you um and yet we pull people from portland from bangor from lewiston auburn to gardner all the time but our our general area they're like yeah i know johnson holiday that little place so you know never been maybe they've never been in maybe they went in once and didn't like it you never know so what we're trying to do is get into people's homes and actually talk about what we do we call it friend raising not fundraising where you know we feel like the dollars will follow if they if they like us if they're willing to come visit us and and see that we've changed or see see even just understand what we do well we will put information about the johnson hall performing arts center in gardner on our show notes page awesome. and i wish you all the best thank you in raising the 4.3 million dollars yes for your renovation by 2019. 2019 is when we, we hope to open. Yep. So. And so we're hoping to start construction as early in 2018 as possible, if not late 2017. So for people so. who are listening, don't yes. hold off on sending money now. Right, right now. You should send it right now. <laughs> right now. <laughs> to uh, Mike McLon yeah. over at the Johnson Hall Performing Arts Center. Thanks so much for coming in. And Thanks it's for really having been me. a pleasure um, learning about your craft. Thank you. You have been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 284 Gardner, Drama and Dining. Our guests have included Michael Guyverson, Neil Anderson, and Michael McLon. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. 
Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our gardener, drama, and dining show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.